I'm Steve Lascazzo, and this is The Way. Welcome to This is The Way podcast's reaction and discussion episode for Chapter 20 of The Mandalorian, Season 3, Episode 4, The Foundling. The obvious answer to to whom is the reference would be Grogu, right? Well, what about Din Djarin? Ragnar? Maybe even Bo-Katan Kryze? And heck, maybe Ahmed Best might apply, well, from a certain point of view. If you're ready to dig into the details with me, and have seen all available episodes of The Mandalorian so far, well, let's go. This is the way. This is the way. March 22nd, 2023, my sister's birthday, Season 3, Episode 4, Chapter 20, The Foundling. We have reached the halfway point. The thumbnail description and full episode description are the same and read, Din Djarin returns to the hidden Mandalorian covert. He speaks the truth. The way this has been written makes it sound like he returns in this episode, but he already did in Chapter 19. Maybe, just maybe... The episode last week was designed to solely be focused on Coruscant, and then the beginning and ending were tacked on from another episode. Maybe the pickup in the mines and the return were to take place in Chapter 20 and got moved. The runtime for Episode 4, Chapter 20, shows up as 33 minutes in parentheses on the Disney Plus show page, and that would put it at the shortest episode, but remember, I'm timing things out all the time. If you press play, you end up getting to the credits in about 27 and two-third minutes, Skip the previously on and the opening sequences. You can get to the episode credits in under 26 and a half minutes. No matter how you choose to count, it's the shortest episode yet. The next closest is a Rick Famuyiwa episode, season one, episode two's The Child, at just over 27 minutes of action. Was there anything to learn from the concept art during the credits about the intentions of this episode? Well... I absolutely love the rock crab shot. It made Grogu look like a giant, almost like a, a beast. And the, the little crab things, you know, look like they were running in, in terror. What a terrific piece of art that is. I want it. The showdown shot between Ragnar and Grogu, that was great concept. But to me, the artwork looked a little unfinished. And I know, these are just concept art. This is just to give an idea of what's going to happen in the scene. But it... It didn't look as good as the, the Grogu one. As short as this episode timed out, I think we actually had more concept art at the end than any of the other episodes from at least this season. Now, that might not be the case, but that's definitely how it seemed to me. And look, all of them end up being spectacular. This is great stuff that we get. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. The credits start with the director, so that's where we're going to start to. Magistrate Grief Karga. That's high Magistrate Karga to you. Of course, I mean Carl Weathers. I have said plenty about the man in the past. I mean, his acting roles are legendary. You think? The whole world's going to see the real Apollo Creed. Dylan! You son of a... Combat Carl? Combat Carl never gets sick. I'm the club pro here. Shubs Peterson. He has been part of the Mandalorian since the first episode, and the evolution of this character from flattering and uncompromising to skilled politician and friend to Din Djarin has been a bit surprising to me. But hey, the guy, the, the actual actor, Carl Weathers, is a very personable guy. That charm has afforded him 
some wonderful opportunities in Hollywood, and I would count directing a Star Wars episode chiefly among them. Writing credit for the episode lies with Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni. The Mandalorian is a different animal from Andor, I know. But I haven't complained about the plotting of the story or pacing, and this episode is no different. Favreau is listed first, but I wonder how much of this was influenced by Filoni. I also wonder which of these two guys was the first one to suggest bringing back Ahmed Best. I think they both get credit, but who was first? Who thought of it first? If I had to guess, I think it was Filoni. Co-signed quickly by Favreau, I admit, but I think this was Filoni's idea. Director of photography was, again, Dean Cundy. And for the third time this season, I'm not going to go through all the crew, don't worry. I I just don't have the time. And I'm not one to judge level of contributions between the different departments. I mean, for example, the production design is still handled by Doug Chang and Andrew L. Jones. So mentioning every week Doug Chang and Andrew L. Jones, well, that just doesn't make sense. If someone knew takes over for an episode, like I mentioned Cundy because episode two, he wasn't the director of photography, or maybe if there's a standout set piece, I'll try to re-mention or dig something up. Now, that may be unfair. The cast may be much more noticeable to the casual watcher, but that's just, I, I have a limited amount of time. Oh, and speaking of the credited cast... Nobody here gives their real name. Pedro Pascal's The Mandalorian, or at least the voice, but the men behind the helmet have earned co-starring credits with their amazing work in the suits, and two men continue to play those different parts for the suits, like the fighting and martial arts, heavy stunts, probably handled by Latif Crowder. He's Brazilian, brings some capoeira to the choreography. Then there is Brendan Wayne. And you gotta, you gotta believe me, I researched this... Early, early, early last week. But uh, he is John Wayne's grandson. And I've seen articles just pop up. And I wonder, like, if it was just, you know, both or, you know, more than one mind coming to the same conclusion. Like, hey, let's do a little bit more on these two guys this week. But I've seen that, you know, that factoid pop up in articles online. And I, I was like, man, I, I had that idea, too. Anyway, he was born... Daniel Brendan LaCava took his famous grandfather's last name when he went to show business. So, you know, when you want someone to play the part of the gunslinger or walk the walk of a space cowboy, that's probably why Brendan Wayne got his job. Bo-Katan Kreese is played by Katie Sackhoff. Emily Swallow is listed next. She's the armor. And when I went looking through my notes on last episode, she wasn't listed. But she does show up in the credits, at least now. I usually take the names down in order and then go back and expand on the names. Uh, I could have accidentally deleted her name last week or missed it outright. I mean, it's there on the credits now. I, I mean, I don't know how I could check that the video on demand may have been updated, but that's probably not likely. I didn't catch that it wasn't in the credits, even though I absolutely mentioned her and the character during my discussion. I mean, I even played a clip with her in it, so if I have to bet, it's just a silly mistake on my part leaving her out of the credits last week. Next is a name that was once contentious among some Star Wars fans. And now, people can sing his praises as the hero of the Jedi Temple, rescuer of Grogu, the sabered hand, Ahmed 
best. My name is Jedi Master Kelleran Beck. Misa called Jar Jar Binks. Yeah, Jar Jar Binks. Look, I, I still don't like that character, and I know there are some kids who grew up loving it and the silly antics, but I think the Gungans in general, specifically Jar Jar, are dumb. That has absolutely nothing to do with best. He did exactly what was asked of him. About three or four years ago, producers of a Star Wars-themed game show gave him a chance to create a character, his own Jedi character, to host Jedi Temple Challenge for Kids. I thought it was a Disney Channel thing. I vaguely remember it, thinking to myself, I would have loved to have been part of that as a kid. Well, ten episodes were available on StarWarsKids.com and YouTube back in the summer of 2020. That character, the host, Kelleran Beck, may not have been canon then. It is now. Not only is Best the actor playing the Jedi who rescues Grogu from the temple, something we've been wondering for a while now, but he's a Jedi and quite proficient with two blades. It was a joy to see Best get to play this heroic character. All Star Wars fans can recognize him now as a hero, even if some kids already grew up loving Jar Jar and recognized him for that already. Saving Grogu and looking cool doing it may not wipe away the years of harassment and abuse he suffered from some so-called fans, but it probably gives him a bump at the autograph tables. I, for one, am happy for him. Everything's going to be alright, kid. Ragnar is once again played by Wesley Kimmel, nephew to the late night talk show host, and we know it is Ragnar Vizsla. The judge of the duel between Ragnar and Grogu was Jason Chu. He's done stunt work and worked as Moff Gideon's double in the Mandalorian series already, and he's had a turn acting for Marvel in Luke Cage. He's been doing stunt work long enough to have done it for Marvel in Captain America Civil War. Oh, and a little old TV series called Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. My name is Phil Coulson, and I'm an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Hey, Tate Fletcher appeared on that show as well, but he's got a pretty good gig with The Mandalorian. Of course, he was the Hey Mando guy in the bar in the very first episode's opening scene, and now he's been wearing the suit for Paz Vizsla for some time now. And of course, Jon Favreau is voicing that character. Tamara Morrison's voice has changed over the years. It's noticeable. It is also unmistakable that he is now the voice of the 501st and the other clone troopers in the flashback scenes, from Order 66 in this episode. Then Juan Javier Cardenas gets a credit, and apologies to him, it's not his resume that interests me as much as the credit. He's listed as Senate Guard Captain. That means the ship, and I'll mention it later, it was a yacht from Naboo of the same kind Anakin and Padme took to visit his family on Tatooine in Attack of the Clones. Somebody from the Senate sent it. It looks like it was Senator Jar Jar Banks. He may have sent the ship to aid Kellenbeck, played by Ahmed Best, who also played Jar Jar Banks in the prequels. It is demanded by the gods, it is! Let's get started, and the previously on segment starts with Ragnar receiving his helmet during his oath ceremony. It is blended with Din Djarin walking into the living waters and taking a sample, with Paz Vizsla doubting and the armorer confirming. We see Bo-Katan come face-to-face with the Mythosaur, and Din Djarin gets pronounced redeemed, then Bo-Katan as well, the armor offering her a place among the same covert. 
after the Lucasfilm Limited and Star Wars sequence, we're back on the planet, but outside the cave. It's training day. Normally, I'd have nothing but nice things to say, but some of the computer graphics in the shots lack polish, in my opinion. The scenes definitely show us trainings taking place, and not just for the foundlings, but for everyone in the covert. Grogu's on the beach, and he steals the scene, in my opinion. I wonder how many of us expected him to crack open one of the shells or simply just, you know, pull the crabs out and eat them raw. If you think I'm being gross, you're not remembering the space spider eggs from season two. When Daddy Din voluntells Grogu for a duel with Ragnar, I felt like, whoa, too soon, Daddy. The more I thought about the scene, though, the more this fits with this culture. And maybe it should with lots of cultures. Failure is one of the first things the foundlings face. So often in our own Western culture, we treat failure as the end of the road or a sign that we're not to continue on. But here, the Mandalorian culture is you know, presenting this as part of life and saying, hey, it's okay. This is how you start to learn. It's a wonderful commentary on what's so often wrong with, I don't know, helicopter parenting, I guess. It's also fitting that we hear the same thing coming from Ragnar and the judge, like, He's too young or too small to fight, but there's not a lot of pushback when they protest. He may not be old enough to speak the creed or wear a helmet, but that doesn't mean he's too young to start learning the way. I view so much of this through the lens of my own life, I gotta say. One does not speak unless one knows. Is that not the creed? Well, I know. Perhaps this lesson is for you then. What a great line. One does not speak unless one knows. That can be applied to so many things. Even the retort to Ragnar was a good one. I mean, perhaps this lesson's for you then? There's a lot of this when you think about how Din Djarin speaks so little in the series. He listens and responds, but and he lets his blaster do the talking a lot. Yeah, sure, but he's not just a man of his word. He's a man of few of them. One does not speak unless one knows. There's no interference from Din during that whole fight. The only words are uh, those of encouragement to his kid. You know, like, I, I mean, that's what I loved about the scene. Mommy Bo even gets involved. Don't worry. My dad was the same way. He's just proud of you. You take it easy on him, kid. Squeeze your fist to launch the darts. You'll be fine couple of things here. She doesn't just say, he is hard on you. It's, my dad was hard on me too. It's completely, it's already accepted in her heart. Grogu may not have come from his DNA, but that is his boy. No one on the show is doubting that parental bond. This is the way. She's not hesitating taking this motherly role for him, but it's not like a a soft, cushy-feely, like, well, I hope you don't get hurt. I, I could almost cry at how wonderful this scene made me feel. I, there's, there is one downside to this development, though. I'm going to now be furious if they don't end up a family unit. I'm, I'm not saying these two have to get married on Naboo and raise little Mandos in a castle by the sea. I'm just invested now in this new family, and I don't think I'm ready to accept any alternative. Grogu, I've seen what you can do. It's okay. Show them. I mean, isn't that the kind of encouragement kids deserve? He's down 2-0 to a more experienced duelist. But Daddy's not talking about, come on, kid, you're embarrassing yourself out there. No, 
hey, if you come back and score a point, I'll get you a glowing ice pop for effort. No, no, no. This is probably a scene that gets overlooked, but I think it's important. I, I do want to say, I don't like there was like one point, two points, and then three and one go for Grogu deciding the match. I didn't like the graphics of the leaps. Uh, I didn't like the creature capture of Ragnar, but I liked the chase. Uh, I I still enjoyed the scene for what it was. Uh, and I mostly enjoyed the encouragement that was going on, and it wasn't necessarily the technical parts of this duel. I think I focused less on what I was seeing and more on what I was interpreting as being the lesson for me. Don't get me wrong either. I, I didn't have a problem with the direction or the camera shots. I just think if there was one aspect of the show that I thought slipped a little bit, I think it was just the computer graphics at some points. I mean, it's not even on par from what I've seen in this show, and still, it's not even that bad. Let me focus on the positive. I, I I liked that when there was a threat, the men rushed in physically. Paz Vizsla and Din Djarin reacted by immediately pursuing the creature. I liked that Bo-Katan had a plan. And at worst, flying her ship was back up. But as it turns out, her forethought ends up being the difference in this case. You know, the men run out of jetpack fuel. They rushed in head first, but Bo-Katan... Not only able to keep up pursuit, but she scouts and then comes up with a plan. There isn't just one boilerplate Mandalorian type, right? We have different skills. I mean, we have a heavy Mando and we have other kinds of, you know, we have a quick draw Mando. We have Mandos probably that use their tools a lot more than using a blaster. Uh, you know, they fight with knives. All of them learn all aspects of it, but, you know, they're specialties. We hear this is not the first time a fouling has been taken. That's heartbreaking to me, but it's also telling. They don't do a lot of mourning, even for Ragnar, or and there's not a lot of emotion. It's as if this is part of life in that universe. That's kind of depressing a little bit. I mean, sometimes... Young are going to be prey, not just creatures, humankind as well. That speaks to the vastness of the galaxy, even though it seems so small to us on the show. A team is assembled, and I assumed that because the armorer calls it a Shriekhawk team, that that was why there wasn't so much panic? Paz Vizsla, enjoin the Shriekhawk training team to accompany you. I will pack extended lariats for your launchers. We must avoid explosives and blasters for the safety of the foundling. I assumed it was a Shriekhawk team because the creature was a Shriekhawk. That might not be the case, but it felt like this was, there was some context here and that the Mandalorians were familiar with this. And, you know, Shriekhawk is on some of the Vizsla clan and Death Watch heraldry. But if it's not a Shriekhawk that they're chasing, I don't know why the armorer says it the way she does. My impression was familiarity with the beast is why the Covert chose this planet. You know, maybe it felt more like home. And while it might have been native to Mandalore, maybe also the Shriekhawk was native to this planet as well, was brought to this planet in the long past or something of that nature. I just felt like there was something telling us that that's why it was called the Shriekhawk team. You are too young to join them. All in good time. Come, Grogu. If you wish to become a Mandalorian, 
There is much work to attend to. After the team heads out, I thought it was terrific to have Grogu continue to learn from someone other than, you know, mom and dad in the covert. Who better than the armor? She's the wisest elder. Yoda was always the wisest, so I thought that was on, you know, I, I know they're not necessarily related. I'm just saying, I thought her teaching him about another aspect of the culture was great. The wise elder teaching the young, uh, you know, the young Padawan, so to speak, uh, youngling, foundling. It also gives us a callback to the first season. So season one, when the armor is making new pieces of armor for Din Djarin, we get snippets of his past in flashback form. We got to see his separation from his parents, his rescue, and folks, they're echoing it here, not just specifically with the armor and Din Djarin and then the armor and Grogu, but, I mean, if you see the episode, you know what's coming. This is the forge. It is the heart of Mandalorian culture. Just as we shape the Mandalorian steel, we shape ourselves. We all begin as raw ore. We refine ourselves through trials and adversity. The Forge can reveal weaknesses. The scenes almost play out the same. You know, Din was in the hole and, and the door opens up and somebody's reaching down. It's Death Watch reaching down to give him a hand. And then here's the introduction of Jedi Kelleran back. The door's opening to the elevator and he reaches out as everything's going to be all right, kid. I mean, there probably weren't many dry eyes in Star Wars fandom. I couldn't believe it. The elevator! Get the young into Kelleran! Go! Everything's going to be all right, kid. I, I doubted what I saw. I mean, the actor that portrayed Jar Jar Binks, at one time, probably more hated than Ryan Johnson, was in a way redeemed with his appearance. Ahmed Best wasn't just any old Jedi. He's the one that rescues Grogu from the blasters of the 501st clone troopers that stormed the Jedi Temple during Order 66. I should say, I don't think this is the way to go with Grogu being rescued. I don't think they should. I think he should have just been captured. But now that they've done it, I just don't think there's a better person in the Star Wars family to give this honor. With all that Best endured, simply because he was playing a role, it's just terrific. It's not just fan service, but a service to the actor. I mean, signing autographs now. He gets to be Jedi Keller and Beck. I know he did from the show, but that, but you know, now it's I'm Jedi Keller and Beck. Did you see what I did in, in The Mandalorian? And oh, by the way, I also played Jar Jar Binks. I mean, I could talk all episode about it. I mean. There's so much about this scene that I loved. I like the continuation of the scene, which we've seen in the past. I mean, I'm glad they didn't stick someone coming in like Anakin coming through the door. We only saw clone troopers in the past, but there was some talk like, oh, you know what they're going to do? They're going to stick Anakin coming through the door first. I feel like that would have cheapened the scene. I really do. Here we simply get 
uh, you know, Jedi falling to superior numbers, and then the elevator scene brings him to a smiling face. And you know what? That's also evocative of another rescue to me. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. I mean, this whole rescue scene was just great to me. I, I, I thought it was interesting to see Monument Plaza in back-to-back weeks of the show. I mean, two very different time periods, two very different contexts. But this chase scene was enjoyable to me. It was not too short, not too long. The guards waiting for Kellerin did confuse me a little bit. I mean, I don't think we're supposed to know who knew that this attack was coming. Who knew to go rescue Grogu? Who knew that Kellerin would be coming to this specific location? Don't worry. We're going to meet up with some friends of mine. But I'm not going to bog myself down in those details unless, you know, the show tries to go and explain it then. It's better that we question a little why the clone troopers knew to head to this platform and then send out two V-Wings. I mean, the ship and the presence of the Senate guards tell me all I need to know. Or rather, it implies something I'm very much on board with. Like I mentioned earlier in the cast and crew part, it's the same type of yacht we see in Attack of the Clones from Naboo, and I think the implication is this was sent by Jar Jar Binks. A character Ahmed Best played sends a ship as a getaway for another character played by Ahmed Best. It is a tradition in our culture for each to donate a small portion of what they earn to the foundlings. It is with these scraps of Beskar that I forged your next piece of armor. The scene ends with the armor finishing the piece, and the rondelle we see Grogu receive is another nice touch. He's too small for traditional armor pieces. He's already got the mithril mail, I mean, <laughs> Beskar mail shirt. But now he's basically got this breastplate in the form of this rondelle that he's wearing on his chest. The species of Grogu does not matter to the Mandalorians. You're a Mandalorian by keeping the creed, not by birth or even by deeds. It is belief. Mandalorian steel shall keep you safe as you grow stronger. You will grow into this rondelle as you grow into your station, foundling Grogu. Later we'll hear that, you know, Bogotan performs a great deed and service but it's not the deed that made her part of the clan, right? It was the faith. It was her believing and 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 observing the traditions that kept her into or, or brought her into the fold. Now Grogu is learning about, well, for lack of a better phrase, being a true Mandalorian. I mean, just like Bo-Katan. I mean, they're both kind of learning what it means to follow the way. She knows how to act like a Mandalorian. She knows all the things, right? But it seems like the meal around the campfire that tell us she's new to the faith. How do you eat when other people are around? You don't. When you get your food, you go off to find a place where you can take off your helmet. Just last week, I was talking about, you know, what what, what do they do in a meal? She's got this honor of being by the fire, Right. How does keeping on a helmet affect the bonding for the Mandalorians? You know, they got their customs. It shouldn't have to be the case, but that's how they've done it, and that's the way it will be. I like that we see her remove her helmet, though, because, you know, we don't have to guess who it is under there. We've already seen her without the helmet plenty, so we know that they do do it. It's just not around other people. I do have a bone to pick with this plan, however. I mean, this means it's a day and a night 
between the the beast picks up Ragnar during the day and they chase it, but they it still hasn't fed the child to the babies. I mean, this doesn't seem possible. I think it should have been the scene shows this immediate rescue, and then there's a problem with the ship or a separate problem arises, and then they need to camp before they go back home. Now, don't get me wrong. The climb and the rescue the next day, it was all exciting, but come on. The kid should have been food already. I mean, I was it was very sad to see the helmet of that previous child, not knowing customs with the children of the watch. I'm hoping that the armor and the best guard that was left behind is brought back. But these are children who became food. And that's also why at the end of the episode, no offense, I wanted to see a big old barbecue with those chicks. I mean, sorry. Although maybe that's like like eating your kids then because the mama bird fed her chicks that eesh. Take my hand. The whole rescue from the nest was exciting though. I liked Paz jetpacking right for the mouth. He keeps his child from being swallowed again. I liked everything Bo-Katan did. I liked everything Din Djarin did. It was very exciting. I also liked the mama getting eaten after crashing into the water. I liked the scene on the rock where the grateful dad is reunited with his son. Are you okay? I'm okay, dad. Thank you. This is the way. This is the way. This sequence goes down really great in my book. I, I just, again, I don't get... Why Bo-Katan, in her moment of triumph, is deflecting the honor of saving a foundling by implying these birds, these beasts, are foundlings in need of care. I mean, can you feel good about making them food? I guess that's better than leaving them there to die. But do we really need that? I mean, it's better than, you know, eating alligator creature meat, I guess. Remember the alligator creature that was exploded in the first uh, opening scene? I mean... All of this is a little weird, right? Bo-Katan Kreez, you have honored your house and all of Mandalore. You have done the highest honor of the creed, saving a foundling. This is the way. This is the way. And we have brought you three more foundlings in need of care and training. Is that so? (laughs) I'm going to choose to pass over that. You know, I'm not ignore it, but I'm just not going to focus on it. I'm going to focus on the stuff I like. How many people thought when she asked about having a different signet than Night Owl, thought, hey, maybe she's going to ask for a Mudhorn? Is it just me? I mean, I, I really would. I thought, oh, man, this is awesome. She's going to ask to be part of their family instead. Would it be acceptable to wear one pauldron of the Night Owl and another with the Mythosaur? The Mythosaur belongs to all Mandalorians. It is always acceptable to wear. I would like that. She just asks for the Mythosaur skull that she wants. Apparently, that's open to all Mandalorians. For me, Bo-Katan asking questions of the armor and the answers she got were very important. Bo-Katan, she's burying her soul a little bit. Instead of possible scorn or ridicule, the armor is accepting and patient. I mean, it's like she's a foundling. But what is a foundling? The foundlings are the future. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. That is from season one. So does that mean that 
if Bo-Katan is a family, that she is part of the future as well? I mean, being one means you've been adopted into a family. In this case, we've got two of them in the Mudhorn clan, and we've got one of them from the Kree's clan. We know Din Djarin was a foundling from watching Season 1, Episode 3, then seeing his rescue by the Children of the Watch. We know Grogu is one, because we saw his rescue and the armor told us so in Chapter 8. It looks helpless. It's injured, but it is not helpless. Its species can move objects with its mind. I know of such things. The songs of Eon's past tell of battles between Mandalore the Great and an order of sorcerers called Jedi that fought with such powers. It is an enemy? No. It's kind we're enemies, but this individual is not. What is it? It is a foundling. By Creed. It is in your care. You wish me to train this thing? It is too weak. It would die. You have no choice. You must reunite it with its own kind. Where? This you must determine. You expect me to search the galaxy for the home of this creature and deliver it to a race of enemy sorcerers? This is the way. Most people don't get to choose their family. Bo-Katan's was taken from her. Look, I grew up in a good family, and when I watched those VHS tapes of Luke, Leia, and Han coming together in the original trilogy for, like, a found family, that was kind of foundational for me. I mean, do you call only the people that are in your family, blood-related family? Would you call people you worship with a family? Would you call the people you work with a family? Maybe. Would you call people you fight battles with a family? I know some uh, in the armed forces do. Din Djarin and Grogu and even Bo-Katan are figuring out what does it mean to be part of a family. And I think that is the central theme of The Mandalorian. What would you say if I told you I saw one? That you saw what? A mythosaur. I would say you are very lucky. It is a noble vision. No, I mean a real one. Beneath the living waters on Mandalore. When you choose to walk the way of the Mandalore, you will see many things. But it was real. This is the way. As warlike as this culture seems to outsiders, there's positive encouragement to Grogu in the duel, And then there's patience and understanding shown to Bo-Katan when they're talking about a subject that might have been considered taboo to some. I cannot wait to see what Favreau and Filoni will bring to us next. Well, there are scenes from the trailer we still haven't seen, so we know a little bit about what's coming next, or maybe not next episode. I mean, we've got shots of the opening shots of the covert walking on the planet from the trailer for season three. Those have not yet appeared. Shockingly, after those shots... We go more than a minute into the trailer before we see something we have yet to see four episodes in. A lot has already been shown, but you know what this scene is that we haven't seen yet that comes a minute after those shots of them on the planet? There's something dangerous happening out there. And by the time it becomes big enough for you to act, it'll be too late. We still haven't seen Captain Tiva yet. There's also a droid bar scene, and the Mandalorian's hot dropping into Navarro, and then there's battle in the streets. I mean, we're halfway through the season. I don't expect any of the remaining shots that we haven't seen 
to come later than episode 6. So what do they have in store for us? Let me know what you think. Interact with us in one of several ways. Find out how to visit our different social media sites by visiting our Linktree site at linktr.ee forward slash this is the way pod. Email is easy. That's this is the way podcast at gmail.com. Twitter and Instagram handles are pretty easy too. At this is the way pod. Facebook, it's just like Linktree forward slash this is the way pod. You can also search for us on YouTube. Please, please do that. Please watch and please subscribe there too. Thank you for joining me for This is the Way Podcast's reaction and discussion of The Foundling. Season 3, Episode 4, Chapter 20 of The Mandalorian. I'm your host, Steve Lascalzo, and this is the way. May the Force be with you, always. Always.